good morning. It's uh, good to see you today. I am eager to bring the Word of God to us today. So if you have a Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 6, if you would. Isaiah chapter 6. And while you're doing that, let me say a short prayer for us. Would our hearts have been softened this morning by singing about the glorious gospel of Christ? Pray now that uh, the Word of God would find soft soil in this room, that we would receive the Word and that it would bear fruit in our lives and in our world. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a guy named Pastor Ed Roll tells a story of a particular woman who lived in Kansas City many years ago. And uh, one day she walked into a Haagen-Dazs ice cream shop. You ever been to one of those? Good stuff. And while waiting there, standing in line, she turned around and she was startled to see Paul Newman standing there right behind her in line uh, waiting to get some ice cream. He was in town filming a movie, but in that moment he was standing just mere inches from one of his most adoring and now most nervous fans. He actually smiled at her and said hello, and she took one look at those legendary blue eyes, and her hands got sweaty, and her knees started to buckle, and her mouth got dry. She tried to say something, but nothing came out of her mouth, and so she turned around and quickly paid for her ice cream and walked out of the store. Once outside, she sat down on the bench there and tried to collect herself and catch her breath. As she calmed down, she realized, I don't have my ice cream cone. So she was debating whether to walk back in when Paul Newman comes striding out through the door, uh, licking his ice cream cone, and he grinned at her and said, are you looking for your ice cream cone? And uh, she was speechless again. She nodded nervously, and he said, well, you you put it in your purse when you put your change in your purse. (laughs) Well, you know, if you or I were to come face to face with one of our favorite celebrities, we might behave in that same way as well. This morning I want to ask this question. I wonder, how would you and I react if we found ourselves having an encounter with God? Would you be nervous, afraid, intimidated? What would it be like if you or I came face to face with pure holiness. Well, there was a man in the Bible who experienced just such an encounter. And in our series that we're in on prayer, which we've titled Draw Near, I am just anticipating today exploring Isaiah chapter 6 together. Not only because it describes this man, Isaiah's encounter with the Lord, but also because we're going to find in this story a pattern for approaching God that's replicated over and over and over again throughout the pages of Scripture. And so as I've been learning about this, there's a growing excitement in me that comes from hoping that we can discover this together. We know the Bible talks about learning God's truth, line upon line, precept upon precept. So let's take a moment and review just some of the things that we've been learning the last few weeks about drawing near to God. Remember that we saw in week one that drawing near is the believer's Precious privilege purchased for us by Jesus' shed blood on the cross. That when He was hanging there on the cross, the curtain, the veil in the temple ripped in two, signifying that access was now possible to the very presence of God for those who would believe in the sacrifice. And so 
It was Christ's death on the cross that gave us the right of prayer and opened up the possibility of prayer. Amen? That's where access came from. And then we saw that drawing near to God also involves really just pouring our hearts out to God. And we explored Psalm 63 together, David's prayer in the wilderness. And we saw that prayer at its core, it's many things, but at its core, it's an outlet for the passion and the praise that flow from a worshipful heart. Then Pastor Jay taught us that drawing near to God also requires confessing our sins to Him, humbly doing so. Even though God already knows all of our sins, and even though believers have been fully pardoned by God's grace for all of their sins, we still need to humble ourselves and own our sin before the Lord, don't we? And be cleansed. Like Peter, we need our feet washed. As we walk through a dirty world, we need our feet washed daily by our Savior Jesus through confession. And last week, Pastor Brian helped us understand that drawing near to God involves praying for those who are in authority over us. And he taught us the truth of our dual citizenship here as citizens of this nation, but also citizens of the kingdom of God. And uh, that God calls us to pray for those who are in political leadership over us. Well, now let's look at Isaiah 6 and see what the Lord has for us today. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I, this is Isaiah now speaking, I said, Woe is me. For I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. What an amazing account. A man who was given a vision of God. Notice again how it starts. In the year that King Uzziah died, and that statement gives us some historical context. Uzziah was one of the kings of the kingdom of Judah, part of the nation of Israel, the southern kingdom. And he ruled and reigned in the 700s B.C. God prospered his reign. It said that he was a good king. He sought the Lord. He feared God. God prospered him economically and politically. And in the polls, it says his fame grew. As often happens with human beings, though, it all went to his head. And he started... Being bloated up with pride, he started feeling like he was someone special, like the rules didn't apply to him, like he could do whatever he wanted with immunity without having to answer to anyone. And God saw his proud heart, and God struck him with leprosy. 
Uzziah finished out his days quarantined, segmented from the rest of the society, forfeiting the blessings of God on his life and reign, and he died in disgrace at the age of 78 in 740 B.C. So in Isaiah's vision, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died. So in 740 B.C., during this season of transition to a new regime, a new a successor, Isaiah is prompted by the Lord to make his way to the temple area, and there he became one of a very select group of human beings who received a vision of God and lived to tell about it. I know there are books out now by people who claim to have seen God, but you can judge for yourself if those visions correspond with the glimpse of God seen by Isaiah. Notice first his vision. I saw the Lord. What Isaiah saw that day was a supernaturally given glimpse of the Lord God Almighty and, and really seven perfections of God in his vision. Notice first of all in his vision that in contrast to the dead king, Uzziah, Isaiah saw a Lord who was living. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, not slumped over a throne, dead, but fully alive. You know, human heads of state come and go, don't they? But God lives on. He is the living Lord. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God, the psalmist wrote. John Piper said, God was the living God when this universe came into existence. He was the living God when Socrates drank his poison. He was the living God when William Bradford governed Plymouth Colony. He was the living God in 1966 when Thomas Altizer proclaimed him dead. And Time Magazine put it on the front cover. And he will be living 10 trillion ages from now and all the puny pot shots against his reality will have sunk into oblivion like BBs at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. There is not a single head of state in all the world who will be ruling still 60 years from now. The turnover rate in world leadership still hovers right around 100%. Everyone will have a successor except God. He has always been. He will always be. He sits on His throne forever. He depends on nothing for His existence. He is the living Lord. Amen? Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. And He was living. And secondly, He was sovereign. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. You know, no vision of heaven has ever portrayed God plowing a field, cutting His grass, shining shoes, filling out reports, loading a truck. He sits on a throne. That's what sovereign kings do. Kings sit in established authority and they rule and plan and judge and make decisions and other people do their bidding. Few things, I think, are more humbling for human beings than to be jolted by the truth that God is utterly sovereign and authoritative over everything. He is the Supreme Court, the legislature. He wrote the laws. He's the chief executive. There is no appeal beyond God. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord and He was sitting on a throne. He's the sovereign King of the universe. And then, it says, high and lifted up. 
And that's a picture of God's superiority. Isaiah had to look up. God's throne was not just one throne among many thrones. It was high and lifted up way above every other authority and dominion on the earth. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6.15, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. In Isaiah's vision, vision, he saw a God who is alive, who is sovereign, who is superior to all else. And number four, he saw a God who is huge. The train of his robe filled the temple. Now the temple in Jerusalem where Isaiah stood was actually just a shadow or a copy of the real temple that is in heaven where God dwells. In Isaiah's vision, he was struck by how big God is. So he saw God adorned in a kingly robe and the fabric and the folds of just his robe filled up the whole temple. God is huge. Recently, a man wrote a book entitled, Your God is Too Small. And to some extent, that's probably true of all of us, isn't it? Our vision of God is too small. Two months ago, I was standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon with my family, looking out at this, this immense, vast vista that was in front of my eyes, and, and I felt so small. You ever been there? It's one of those things where pictures or videos don't really do it justice. You've got to be there and feel the immensity of this thing. And I'm standing there feeling about this big, but it wasn't a bad small feeling. It was a good small feeling. Because as I looked out, I thought, you know, my God made that. I kind of picture him scooping it out with his pinky one day, you know. <laughs> God is huge! And Isaiah saw the huge God of the universe. And he's revered in heaven. It says, above him stood the seraphim. They had six wings. No one knows exactly what these strange six-winged creatures are with feet and hands and eyes and intelligence. The word seraphim is only used here in the Bible, only here in Isaiah. The word seraphim means burning ones, inflamed ones. They're likely a class of angels. We shouldn't picture them as chubby little babies with wings and harps fluttering around God's ears. That would not be an accurate picture. We should probably picture them as marvelous, majestic, magnificent, thunderous beings. Verse 4, it says, when one of them speaks, the foundations of the temple shake and the room fills up with smoke. Maybe a better, more accurate picture might be of the blue angels diving before the throne of God and cracking the sound barrier right in front of the Lord of hosts. There are no puny or silly creatures in heaven, only magnificent ones. Every movement of the seraphim, every word coming out of their mouths expresses reverence for the king. You know, down here on the earth, God is not much revered, is he? He's taken lightly. He's a joke to many people. His name is taken in vain often. But in heaven, things are as they should be. Make no mistake, God is revered in heaven. These burning creatures can't even look upon the Lord. They don't feel worthy, even worthy to allow their feet to be exposed in His presence, so they cover their feet. As good and great as these beings are, and they are untainted by sin, they revere their Maker in humility and awe. 
hiding their eyes in holy fear from the holiness and glory of God. And what are they saying? What are they crying out? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Isaiah looked up and he saw a God who is holy. Holy. This is so rich. The attribute of God that is most captivating to these worshiping creatures that seems to be the summation of all of His other attributes that likely causes them to burst into flames is His holiness. It's interesting to me that the the, the angels are not crying out, loving, loving, loving is the Lord God Almighty, or merciful, merciful, merciful. He is those things. But that's not what captivated their attention. It's the holiness of God. Presumably His brilliant holiness that causes them to shield their eyes and cover their feet. And as Isaiah gazes on this scene, I can just picture him kind of shrinking back, shielding his eyes from the magnificent glory and majesty of the King. He hears the resounding antiphonal cries of the heavenly creatures extolling the utter holiness of God back and forth. Holy! 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 What is holiness? What does it mean to be holy? Whole sermons could be preached on that. Whole series could be preached on that. Whole lifetimes could be devoted to understanding the holiness of God. If you've ever heard of a man named R.C. Sproul, who I think is in his 70s now, that's been his life's work, trying to grasp the holiness of God. The original word in the original language, holy means to cut and separate. To cut and separate. A holy thing is something that is cut away from common and ordinary use and separated unto God, devoted to Him exclusively. And so the word holy has a certain meaning when it's applied to earthly things or to people. And we see this in the Bible. The Bible talks about holy ground, holy assemblies, holy Sabbaths, holy nation, holy garments. A holy city, holy promises, holy men, holy women, holy scriptures, holy hands, a holy kiss, holy faith. Almost anything can become holy if it is separated from that which is common and devoted to God. But when the term is applied to God, language begins to fail us. We've sailed to the end of the ocean of language. And words begin to fail us to describe what it means to take holy and apply it to God. And we end up saying that to say God is holy is to say that God is God. Distinct, separate from everything else. He is one of a kind. He's in a class by Himself. There is no one like God. 1 Samuel 2.2 declares this. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. Isaiah 40, verse 25. The Lord speaking, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like Him, says the Holy One. Hosea 11:9. I am God and I am not a man. The Holy One in your midst. In the end, God is holy means that God is God and not human. And as a result, he has rights that no one else has. He can make declarations that no one else can make. He can say, worship me 
glorify me. And it's not selfish and sinful as it would be if I said that or if you said that. Because he's God. Who else can he point to and say, oh yeah, worship them? He is holy. He is unique. He is set apart. And the seraphim are crying out, holy, holy, holy in superlatives. Probably an allusion to the Trinitarian God that we serve. Holy is the Father. Holy is the Son. Holy is the Spirit. Three persons, one essence, all holy. What a scene this must have been for Isaiah to behold. Overwhelming. And then we see that God is all of these things and God is glorious. They say, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. You'd expect Him to say holiness, but it says glory. You say, what's the difference between God's holiness and His glory? Well, the glory of God is the manifestation of His holiness. God's holiness is His many perfections, one man wrote, but when it goes public, it's called glory. The whole earth is full of His glory. His glory is His holiness on display. Let me say that again. God's glory is His holiness, the essence of who He is, on display for the world to see, and it's usually manifested in bright, dazzling, brilliant light. The glory of God. And the seraphim are calling out, the whole earth is full of His glory. Remember, it's a vision of heaven, so they're looking down on the earth, and from their vantage point, the whole earth is full of the glory of God. But down here, it doesn't always seem like that, does it? From our vantage point. It's kind of like when the stars in the night sky are obscured in our view by the city lights and they don't look brilliant to us until we get out in the desert somewhere, out in the wilderness where there are no city lights and we go, oh my. There's billions of stars and galaxies out there. The promise though is that one day the glory of God will fill the entire earth blazing in brilliant, dazzling light and all will see it. And appreciate it for what it is. By the way, do you know who exactly Isaiah was seeing in this vision? Do you know the identity of the one clothed in glory and holiness? Do you know who it is? John, in John 12.41, says it was Jesus. Very explicitly he says it. That was, Isaiah's vision was a vision of Jesus Christ. So chew on that for a little bit. The eternal Son of God, the pre-existent Son of God, sitting on His throne. King Jesus, that's who Isaiah saw. High and lifteth up. Alive. Sovereign. Superior to everybody else. Revered, huge, superior, holy, glorious. He sees the Lord Jesus Christ on the throne. He sees the seraphim on fire, burning up in His presence, in awe of Him, obsessed, with His holiness and pointing it out. Look, He's holy. And so Isaiah sees this magnificent vision and what was His response? Woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm lost. I'm, King James says, I'm undone. <laughs> seeing what I'm seeing, seeing the, seeing the sight, I, I'm, I'm, I'm coming apart. I'm disintegrating. Cursed, that's what woe means. Cursed am I. 
After being overwhelmed by the holiness of God, Isaiah is then overwhelmed by his own sin. His own dirtiness, his uncleanness, his filth. I can just imagine him saying, I, I, I don't deserve to be anywhere near holiness. Probably felt like running. I thought about how that feels, and it, it's, to me it's reminiscent of Job. Job, who had his own ego-shattering encounter with God. In Job 42.5, he said, I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I think it's also reminiscent of Peter's reaction hundreds of years later when he found himself in a boat with Jesus of Nazareth and it dawns on him who Jesus is. And it says in Luke 5.8, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You see, in the presence of pure holiness, humanity stands exposed and dirty. This, by the way, is how you can know if you've ever really encountered God. You become aware of the stark contrast between who He is and who you are. Now, for human beings, though, the natural inclination that we have when it comes to assessing how good we are or how morally upright we are is not to compare ourselves with God, but to compare ourselves with who? With other people, right? And generally come out pretty favorable in those comparisons. People have a rating scale in their mind by which they do this. It's kind of like the story that's told of a small town that was terrorized for years by a couple of wicked brothers. And then unexpectedly one day one of the brothers died. Well, the surviving brother uh, went to the local Baptist pastor in town. And he said, look, I'll give you $50,000 if you will preach my brother's funeral. But there's a condition. You've got to tell everyone that he was a saint. So everybody in town heard about this transaction. And then on the day of the funeral, they all turned out en masse to just see just how this godly pastor was going to pull this off. And so he got up and he began his eulogy by saying this. Well, we all know Zeke here lived for 40 years in sin. He cheated his employees. He cheated on his wife. He neglected his kids. He kicked little cats and dogs. But as evil as Zeke was, compared to his brother, this man was a saint. <laughs> I mean, we laugh, but it's so true, isn't it? You say, compared to so-and-so, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm looking pretty good. I come out above them on the rating scale of goodness. I would never do what Casey Anthony did. I'm not perfect. Compared to all those bad people, though, I'm pretty good. But when someone gets a true vision of God, all those rating scales and ranking systems get trashed. Isaiah saw the Lord and he did not say, well, compared to most people around here, I'm a saint. That was not what came out of his mouth. His response was, compared to you, God, I'm a cesspool of filth. My mouth is dirty. Filthy. And I live among people with dirty mouths. 
Remember, Isaiah was a prophet. Speaking is what he did for a living. It's what he did for God. But confronted with pure holiness, he was smitten with guilt over the inconsistency of what came out of his mouth. Didn't James write about this years later? The human tendency to speak out of both sides of our mouths? He says, look, James wrote, look, you, you, you know, in one moment you're blessing God, praise Jesus, glory to God, and within minutes out of the same mouth comes cursing towards your fellow man who was made in the image of God. Brothers, these things ought not to be. But it's part of the human condition, isn't it? Isaiah knew it was true of him. You see, Isaiah saw the Lord, and in seeing the Lord, he realized the Lord sees me. The Lord sees me. And he knew in that moment he stood exposed in the bright light of the holiness of God. If I close my eyes, I can remember the day as an 18-year-old that God showed me my sin for the first time. I remember it. I was 18. God was stirring things up in me. I was seeing God in ways I'd never seen Him before. One night I just knew I had to get alone with God. Hopped in my yellow Mazda wagon, drove up a mountain, found a clearing late at night, and just went into the back of my car and laid out and just saw the Lord. And for the first time, I saw my sin. Not compared with all my friends, not compared with all the other people I knew, but compared with Jesus Christ. I saw my sin, my selfishness, my self-promotion, how I'd been out to make a name for myself, how I'd treated people and misused them and abused them. I saw my sin, and I remember the tears running down my face as I saw it for the first time. Because for the first time, I wasn't comparing myself with Joe and Mary, but with Jesus Christ. And the contrast was stark. Like Isaiah, I remember feeling like saying, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Like Peter, I felt like saying, depart from me, I'm a sinful person. Let's all understand today that when we encounter the presence of the Lord, we will likely feel undone, exposed, ruined. And that is a very, very uncomfortable feeling apart from atonement, which we'll talk about in a moment. A few weeks ago, a number of us were down here praying after the, in response to God's Word. And we were seeking to draw near to God together. And afterwards, I asked one of the people in our church who I believe has some prophetic giftings. I asked, what, do you, what did you sense was going on in new life in, in that moment as people were seeking to draw near to God? And they said, that they sensed that some of us were reluctant to linger, to linger in God's presence because we were uncomfortable with feeling undone and exposed. And so we hurried back to our seats because we didn't like how it felt. But the answer to that feeling of being undone is not running and it's not despair. The answer, the solution is atonement. Look at what happened next in Isaiah's experience. At just that moment, when Isaiah saw his sin, and he might have been contemplating the merits of hightailing it out of there, 
one of those burning creatures, one of those seraphim, took some tongs, you know what those are, flew over to the altar that was there in the courtyard, picked up a burning red-hot coal, took it, flew over to Isaiah, and touched his mouth with it, searing his lips. That's a intriguing picture of atonement. It's a picture of God's provision for sin. In that moment of overwhelming guilt and despair, God acted. Rather than condemning Isaiah, yeah, you are filthy. (laughs) Rather than consuming him in his holiness or grinding him into powder or leaving him to be crushed by the weight of his guilt, God moved towards Isaiah in mercy. Through his emissary, God came and personally applied the remedy of grace to Isaiah. In fact, to that very specific area of sinfulness, his mouth. And it seared away, it burnt away his sin. Listen, God's holiness is overwhelming. And our sin is great. But God's mercy is greater still. Amen? His mercy is greater still. He has made a way for the guilt of sin, Isaiah's sin, our sin, to be removed. He Himself has made atonement for our sins. God did for Isaiah what Isaiah could not do for Himself. And He will do the same for you and for me. Praise God. Then notice, after that, the verbal affirmation, the message of assurance. The seraphim speaks and says, Isaiah, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. I love this. This is gospel truth in the Old Testament. Sin revealed, sacrifice applied, mercy lavished, grace poured out, guilt removed, sin atoned for, assurance affirmed. It is done, Isaiah. You're clean. Your slate's been wiped clean. You're guiltless. Your sin's been punished. There was a sacrifice that took place over there on the altar. Blood was shed. Your sin is punished. You're clean. And then the voice. Isaiah hears God speaking. I heard the voice of the Lord. That's a good day right there. When you are hearing the voice of God speaking to you, Not much else matters. Isaiah hears the Trinitarian God discussing his plans. To whom can we entrust this difficult assignment that we have? God knew a message needed to be delivered to his people and it was a hard message. Looking for a messenger, of course he knew who the messenger was. But Isaiah overhears the heavenly conversation. Who will go for us? Us. Who's us? Father, Son, Spirit. Who will go for us as if the Lord didn't know? And Isaiah responds to the voice with renewed devotion. Here I am. Send me. See, now he was ready. His heart was ready. Even for a difficult assignment. He had seen God. He had seen his own sin. And he had received cleansing through the atoning work of God. His mouth was now clean and ready again to be an instrument for speaking the Word of God to the people. He was cleansed, and now he was confident. 
Well, this is an amazing, beautiful vision, isn't it? There are three things I wanted us to see and be reminded of today. Number one, God is holy. Yes, through the Gospel, God has become our Father, our Abba, Daddy, Father. Praise God. But I believe that we should not ever get so casual and cavalier and familiar that we cross that line of appropriateness and forget that He's also holy. He's still holy. But He has become our Father through the Gospel. Second, there's a wonderful hope for those who truly see and feel the weight of their sin in light of God's holiness. And that hope is in the Gospel of Atonement. The sacrifice that God planned and carried out. And third, there's here a glorious pattern for God's people to follow in approaching and drawing near to God. And this is the one I want to talk about for the next couple of minutes. There's a pattern here. I was never taught this. This is new to me. I've been learning this recently, and I, I'm, I'm excited as I see how the gospel shapes how we worship and pray and how we draw near to God. Now that I'm seeing it more clearly, I'm seeing it everywhere in the Bible. There it is again. Oh, there it is again. Oh, there it is. It's all over the place. It's a pattern for approaching God, whether you're looking at Isaiah's worship here in Isaiah 6 or Israel's worship at Mount Sinai in Deuteronomy 5 or Solomon's worship in 2 Chronicles 5 or the sequence of offerings in the tabernacle worship or later in the temple worship or in the New Testament, the believer's worship in Romans 11 through 15 or the pattern that's revealed in Revelation. There's a consistent pattern emerging in all of those accounts for how God wants His people to draw near to Him. In his book, Christ-Centered Worship, Brian Chappell calls it the gospel pattern for worship. Here's what he writes. Listen. The consistent message of Scripture and the liturgies of the church throughout the ages combine to reveal a pattern for corporate worship that is both historical and helpful for our time. Christian worship is a re-presentation of the gospel. By our worship, we extol, embrace, and share the story of the progress of the gospel in our own lives. We worship God according to this gospel pattern, not because of some arbitrary worship rules, but because the content of the gospel shapes our response to it. The gospel shapes its containers. I've been meditating on that for about two months. Corporate worship is nothing more and nothing less than a re-presentation of the gospel in the presence of God and His people for God's glory and our good. Public worship, what we're doing right now, is meant to be a representation of the gospel. Think of it as a map leading to the presence of God that has at least six checkpoints. The first one, the first checkpoint, is recognizing God's greatness and holiness and majesty. Worship and prayer begins with a vision of God. That's what it, where it began with Isaiah, right? I saw the Lord. That's where it starts. A vision of God's greatness and holiness and majesty. That's what he wants us to see first. Because everything else flows out of that in sequence. And when we see that first, then number two, then we acknowledge our selfishness and sinfulness and pride in contrast to God's holiness and majesty. Chapel wrote this. 
Some people have questioned whether confession of sin has any place in contemporary worship services. Such acknowledgement of our shortcomings and sins might be perceived as a downer or a turnoff to congregants who have little background in church. However, it is reasonable to question whether worship is really Christian worship at all if there is no opportunity for confession. Human confession is the reflex response of encountering the divine. If there really has been no confession in a worship service, then there has been no real apprehension of God. His praise necessitates our humility. We cannot truly honor His worth without sensing our unworthiness. This is a gospel reflex. You see the checkpoints? God, You are holy. We're not. Third, affirming God's gracious provision of pardon. That's what happened with Isaiah. God acted. God provided His pardon. God has done what we could not do by providing a sacrifice for our sins through the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so in our worship and in our prayer, we come to this point where we say, thank you, God, for the sacrifice that makes any of this and all of this even possible. Fourth checkpoint is the receiving assurance. God's assurance of cleansing, reminding each other of God's gracious promise of forgiveness and cleansing through the blood of Jesus Christ. Reminding each other of that. You're forgiven, brother. You're forgiven, sister. Every sin you've ever committed and every sin you ever will commit under the blood, pardoned all of your transgressions. Hey, when Jesus died, all your sins were future. Did you know that? This is the assurance of cleansing and forgiveness. Then, number five, then we're ready to hear the word of the Lord, to receive instruction from His word. Having been soaked in gospel truth, our hearts are now soft and ready to hear His instructions for living in light of His grace to us. And then, responding with thankful celebration and renewed devotion. Here am I. Send me. Responding back to God's Word with grateful submission and obedience. Let me wrap this up with a few challenges for us here at New Life Church. How does this apply to us? Well, I think there there is some direction here for those who plan worship services, whether it's for adults or students or children. Let's consider the sequence of the gospel pattern that we see in Scripture for drawing near to God. Let's grow in our conviction that when we come together to worship, we're actually retelling the progress of the gospel story in our lives. How about for the worshipers who desire to draw near to God? Any worshipers here today? How about for us? When we come together, let's ask the Holy Spirit of God to prepare our hearts to fully enter into every phase of worship. So let me say a few pastoral words to all of us. I believe that for some, this would involve making adequate preparations to be present at the start of worship. This is not scolding. This is just saying if you miss the first couple checkpoints, it's doubtful that you'll end up experiencing the full measure of what God wants you to experience on your journey. Let's be on time. Let's come ready for our heart with our hearts prepared to worship. 
For others, this might involve giving focused attention to the Lord during the 90 minutes we share together every weekend rather than multitasking, (laughs) which our culture has discipled us to do, right? So you're listening to the sermon and you're texting four friends and have your iPod going, you know, and we can do this now. We've been trained to do it, but is not the Lord worthy of undivided attention for 90 minutes? I just can't picture Isaiah going, yeah, uh, you know, just. For others, this might involve reexamining your motivations for coming to church. Why do you come? What do you expect when you come? For others, it might involve being open to new expressions of response and accepting and releasing the emotions of worship which are multifaceted and varied. It's okay to cry in church. It's okay to weep. Woe is me! It's okay to shout when we see the glory of God. It's okay to rejoice. It's okay to kneel. It's okay to sing at the top of your lungs. The emotions of worship are many. And some of us just need to get to that point where we're free to accept that and release those emotions in worship. For others, this might involve rescheduling your activities on the Lord's Day so that corporate worship is the priority. Instead of wrapping this around other things, you wrap everything around the priority of drawing near together. For all of us, This is the one that God's been speaking to me about. Let's be open to the element of confession when we come together to worship. Confession of our sin humbles us, doesn't it? It reminds us of our need for the gospel. Even as Christians, our need for the gospel to keep cleansing us. And so I have plans and intentions of interjecting into our weekend worship times, times of confession in the future where we just come humbly before the Lord and acknowledge you are holy and we're not. And we know that. And thank you for the gospel that cleanses us. And then for all of us, let's draw near to God together. Together. And towards that end, I'm going to ask you to stand with me And prepare your heart to spend the next few moments doing just that, drawing near to God together. Let's make Isaiah's experience with the Lord the cry of our hearts. And and towards that end, I I wrote out a prayer. And I kind of got on a roll, and it's long. Um, But I'm not sorry. That encapsulates Isaiah's experience in the presence of God for us. So it's going to come up on the screen and in a spirit of prayer, let's speak these words of prayer to the Lord out loud together, would you? Dear Father in heaven, You are our God and we are Your people. We acknowledge today that You are the King above all kings the Lord over all other lords. You are high and lifted up and seated on heaven's throne. We declare that you are infinitely holy as the angels surrounding you have been affirming for thousands of years. Compared to you, 
we are woefully dirty, unclean, and unfit to be anywhere near you. And we live among an unclean people. Because of our many sins, we should rightly be consumed by your holiness, but we are not. By your great mercy, you have made a way for us to draw near. We give you our highest praise for planning and carrying out the sacrifice of your holy son. Jesus, we could never repay you for what you have done for us. We affirm that we are the ones who deserve death and hell, but you took our sin, shame, and punishment upon yourself. You absorbed all of the Father's holy wrath against our sin and gave us your righteousness in return. Your grace toward us is truly amazing. Thank you for your gifts to us. Forgiveness, full pardon, cleansing, righteousness, peace with God, purpose in life, the Holy Spirit, the Bible, the church, heaven, and a thousand other blessings. Create in us a passion to see your glory, know you more fully, and worship you more sincerely. Enable us to walk confidently in your truth and send us to our neighbors and around the world with your glorious gospel message. Here we are. Send us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.